0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning everybody and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me are some of my personal favourites, Dr. Ewan. Good morning. How are you coping, pearl With good. Dr. Jenna,
1: <laughs> five more sleeps, <laughs>
0: <laughs> freezing their butt off in Antarctica.
1: Yeah, she swam in fact three times, two degrees C.
0: That doesn't sound sane. No,
2: but questionable. Um, yeah, questionable. questionable. Yeah, questionable. Yes,
0: Chris K.P. is also in the studio. Good morning.
2: Uh, hello there, how are you? Pleased to know that uh, my, my bud is nowhere near that cold. <laughs> I didn't need to know that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for caring.
0: Now, we haven't given uh, Dr. Linden a mic, but she's here taking on a very, very special role today because our Twitter queen, Liv, is uh, elsewhere uh, entertaining herself. I believe she's working. Um, but uh, And we can't pay her a triple R, so, you know, it <laughs> is what it is. But Lyndon is coming to help us out because today... We're doing something that may be due to uh, me drinking, maybe due to me just having a moment of a lapse of clarity, but we decided we would invite in 20 PhD students. And give them all around a minute to talk about their work. So this is our penultimate show. Next week's our last show for the year. We thought we'd do something crazy. We were trying to work out how many we could physically fit in the studio. Chris K.P. said 47. Mm. Uh, I thought it was 15. We squared it off in the middle with 20. And because I can't do maths, I invited 22. (laughs) (coughs) So we have 22 students that we're going to talk to over the next sort of, I don't know, 20-ish minutes. But they'll be a bit longer than that with some breaks. Uh, They have been primed, Uh, we've given them a little bit of a chat, just about, uh, you know, they didn't know what they were coming in for, we told them it was a science show. Uh, They seem pretty happy, Uh, only three of them have thrown up so far, and one of them was Chris KP. So um, (laughs) we're good to go, and we're going to start in just a moment with our first PhD student. They'll be be coming in one after another, so prepare yourself, strap yourselves in folks, because this is going to be rapid fire, but you're going to learn a whole lot in a very short space of time. PhD student number one. Akhil, welcome.
3: Hi, my name is Akhil. Hey, how are you?
0: <laughs> now, where are you from and what do you do?
3: Uh, so I'm in the School of Electrical and Biomedical Engineering in RMIT University, um, and I'm working on uh, 3D printing um, or additive manufacturing, uh, which is used to create patient, patient-specific implants uh, for orthopaedics. Um, and as you may know, it um, there's been several uses for it, especially even in uh, defence and aerospace. Uh, but... Um, looking at the biological side there has been problems uh, due to the osseointegration uh, which is the bone implant contact mm. um, and but there are problems due to the um, ability for it to interact with the surrounding tissue right, so right. Um, even though this has happened, um, one of the ways we try to tackle it uh, and what I'm doing in my PhD is to uh, develop a diamond coating to improve the biological interface. So this improves the mammalian cell growth and uh, reduces the bacterial um, attachment. So um, by doing this, um, we hope to improve um, titanium implants, which are 3D printed in general, but also for biomedical implants. Sounds
0: fantastic. I am coming to you when I need a hip. Thank you very much for being our first PhD student. All right, thank you. Thanks, Shane. See you guys. Awesome. Number two in the studio, Steph, tell us who you are and where you're from.
4: Hi, I'm Steph, and I'm a PhD student from Monash's Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food. Mm -hmm. My PhD is looking at environmental sustainability of hospital food services. Um, And this is a really big issue because hospitals are responsible for providing three meals a day to all their patients, including drinks and snacks. And This has a significant environmental footprint when you consider all of the resources that go into producing and preparing the food. Um, And then there's resulting food waste, um, which, when it goes to landfill, creates methane Mm -hmm. and other wastes such as plastics. Um, So, given the urgency of climate change and environmental sustainability issues at the moment, we really need to reconsider this issue. Um, So my PhD is firstly looking at the literature and what we can understand of what are these environmental impacts and the strategies that can be used to reduce them. Um, Secondly, what are the perspectives of those actually involved in working on the ground on this issue? And thirdly, um, how is this problem addressed in policy? Mm -hmm. Um, And so if we're able to make hospital food services more sustainable, um, we can also see other benefits such as um, cost savings through better resource management, improved patient outcomes and satisfaction, um, and hospital are better able to consider the environment as well as human health and position themselves as leaders to a more sustainable food system.
0: Sounds fantastic thank you very much Steph. Thank you number three, PhD number three who are you and where are you from?
5: Hi, my name is Catriona. I'm from the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity.
0: Yep, cool. And what are you working on, Catriona?
5: I'm working on immune cells that recognize fat molecules, and they're a little bit unconventional from normal immune cells that people study, so I call them hipster immune cells.
0: Hipster immune cells? (laughs)
5: Yeah.
0: (laughs) And are these immune cells that attack fat molecules or are part
5: of fat molecules? Yeah, they they target fat molecules, and one thing that I'm looking at in particular is those that are targeting fat molecules that are unique to the bacteria that causes tuberculosis or TB.
0: Okay and is the goal to sort of you know soup them up so that they're better at this or is it something where they just don't work in some
5: people? Um, Well one thing that doesn't work in people or a lot of people is the vaccine so I'm Mm. looking at what kind of fat molecules we might be able to add to the vaccine so that we can generate bigger and better immune responses because what they're doing is these immune cells are targeting um, and because they're hipster, they're a little bit different, so they work quite quickly. So I'm trying to sort of, I guess, generate an army of immune cells that we can use to fight off this disease.
0: Sounds fantastic. Thank you so much. Jeez, a I minute mean goes fast, doesn't it? <laughs> Next in the studio, PhD student number four. Lauren, tell us about who you are and where you're working.
6: Uh, hi, Shane. Um, my name's Lauren, and I'm at the Centre for Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne.
0: Wow, Psycho-ph- psychopharmacology. It's a mouthful.
6: Yeah, what's yep. that? Um, so currently... Um, we're faced with an ageing population in Australia. Mm-hmm. And in parallel to this, we're seeing a huge transition in diets um, moving towards a Western diet and processed foods. And so uh, we know that there's a lot of research out there looking at diet quality and our cognitive and mood outcomes. But yeah. unfortunately, it's not translating into our clinical trial research, which right. is a lot of the stuff we're doing at our centre. Yeah.
0: And you need that to prove that it is viable as a treatment? Yeah. or yeah. yeah,
6: definitely. So uh, a lot of our research in our group is... What we're finding is that there's a lot of um, bias in participant selection, and the people that self-select to be a part of this research. So, um, through my research, I'm trying to recruit a broader range of participants—people mm. that might have suboptimal diets, suboptimal nutrient status—that might benefit greater from supplementation or diet um, improvement. Yep. And um, yeah, identifying those at-risk populations that may, you know, be more at risk for dementia or mood disorders yeah. in aging.
0: Yeah. Well, Chris G. can talk about his diet later. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's filthy. <laughs> Lauren, thanks so
7: much.
6: Thank you.
0: Thanks so much. Okay, number five, Maddie. Yes, Tell hi. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from?
7: Hi. So, um, yes, I'm, my name's Maddie Weems. Um, I'm from the Hudson Institute of Medical Research, yep. which is out in Clayton, um, and I'm a microbiology student. So my project is looking at changes to host cell death pathways during salmonella infection.
0: Okay, so what, what's happening there when you, when you get salmonella? Um, host cell death pathways yes
7: um, so basically we, we know that w- salmonella can be ingested through improperly cooked food such yep. as eggs everyone's really scared about getting salmonella in their eggs yeah. um, so once it actually gets into your body it can invade the cells in your small intestine um, and that's when the bacteria gets into those cells and it replicates, makes a lot of copies of itself and then gets out of those cells into other neighbouring cells and prolongs the infection yeah. um, so basically we're interested in the cell death pathways because we think that's how the bacteria. Is getting
0: out and spreading oh okay by killing some of our cells yeah exactly by killing off control. the cells
7: and getting out into other places
0: mm-hmm. fascinating well thank you very much um good luck with your phd we're up to number 6 Jeez, we're zipping through them another lauren
7: another lauren
0: actually yes the second lauren yeah. <laughs> tell us about your work lauren and where are you from
7: So my name is Lauren Pearson. I'm from the Pre-Hospital Emergency and and Trauma Research Group at Monash. I'm actually a public health researcher, which is a bit different to what Mm. we've been hearing today. And we know that public health is really the science and the art of promoting health and preventing disease. And my PhD fits really well into that. So I'm looking at what helps and what stops people riding their bike to get around Melbourne and regional Victoria, uh, even to work or just your local cafe, things like that.
0: I hope I don't come up. As one of the reasons people stop the way I drive.
7: You may do. <laughs> <It doesn't know. laughs> hasn't all been conducted yet. You may.
0: <laughs> what what give us a couple of quick things. What's what sort of things stop people doing that? Is it just them not wanting to take the risk or
7: yeah well i'm only a year in so i don't know fully just yet but what we've seen so far is that the perception of safety is a really big thing so riding along a road and having a high volume of traffic that are going at a high speed as well that really puts people off so we want to have protected bike lanes somewhere where people are going to feel safe not you know just your classic cyclist but you know a mum and dad or anything like that riding their bike
0: sounds fantastic and i suppose it allows us to then uh coordinate our construction of bike paths and stuff so no, yes, exactly. we're at the time thank you Lauren thank you. good luck with your PhD and in our first group of seven before we take a break Nicole tell us about your work and uh, where you're from
8: hi um, so yeah I'm Nicole and I'm at the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity Yep. and I actually study the same pathogen as Maddie who we heard from earlier Salmonella Typhimurium. But specifically, I look at secretion systems and their effect on the host cell during infection. Okay. So salmonella has these secretion systems, and they're actually like little nanomachines that inject proteins into host cells. And these proteins can act as enzymes, or they can dampen the immune response or cell death signaling pathways. Right. Um, so my work is to characterize one of these effector proteins. And by learning more about um, secretion systems, we can actually learn more about host cell biology and also the potential for using secretion systems as therapeutic tools.
0: Yeah, presumably this is for it ends up being for any sort of um infection too, not just the one you're yeah, looking at. So Yeah, so
8: actually secretion systems are found in a bunch of different bacteria that you might have heard of, such as Shigella, chlamydia, pathogenic E. coli. Mm, right. So by learning more about the secretion systems we can learn about other bugs as well, which is really cool. Yeah,
0: <laughs> sounds great. Thanks Nicole. Geez, well that's seven done. Uh we're gonna take a break for some music folks and we'll be back with another seven.
9: Three Two. Two.
0: Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein, the go on 3RRR. We are attempting to interview some 20, actually 22, PhD students inside about 20 minutes with a couple of breaks in the middle. Number eight on the list is Ellen Jared. Well, Jared?
10: Jared. <laughs> yeah, I
0: knew it screwed screw something up today. Ellen, tell us about uh, where you're from and your work.
10: Okay, so I'm from the Hudson Institute of Medical Research. I'm in the Centre for Reproductive Health. And my PhD. I'm, for my PhD, I'm looking into how... Um, epigenetic marks are regulated in our eggs. So epigenetic Mm. marks are like the highlighter that gets added to our DNA and it helps our cells to identify what genes are important or what's not important in a given cell type. So I'm trying to figure out how a new type of cancer drug affects, which specifically stops these marks from being added to DNA I want to know how this type of drug affects eggs and then subsequently what that means for offspring health.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating because presumably that means things that are passed on that we don't want to be passed on you could switch off. Is that what you, you know, if, if you could control
10: that? Yeah, well, so uh, environmental factors like our diet, uh, drug intake, alcohol, things like that yeah. can um, alter our epigenome in our eggs and sperm and that yep. this can then have consequences in our offspring, so Very interesting. it's just something we need to better understand really yeah.
0: No, yeah. It's, Epigenetics, it's fascinating, I love yeah. it it's really weird stuff, but thank you so much Ellen, that was thank great you. Uh, Next up in the studio is Laura, number 9 Hi, tell us about yourself Laura
11: Yes, so I'm Laura, I'm from the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne and uh, from the Florey Institute as well yep. uh, My PhD research was uh, investigating whether music training is protective for the brain um, particularly in the context of brain disorders like epilepsy, which is mm-hmm. what I'm focused on um, and particularly looking at whether it's protective for the cognitive skills, um, and so the cognitive impairments that people with epilepsy um, often experience.
0: Right. Yeah. And and how do you how do you literally go about that in like how do you test that? Yeah,
11: so I uh, recruited a whole bunch of people with epilepsy some of them had had music training in the past some of them hadn't had any music training so I categorised them and then gave them a whole bunch of music tests and a whole bunch of cognitive tests like testing their language and memory Um, Mm -hmm. and we did find that the non-musicians with epilepsy tended to show as expected poor verbal cognitive skills um, like memory and verbal fluency but the musicians with epilepsy didn't show those same deficits which suggests that their music training might have sort of rewired the brain so that perhaps other pathways can be used when the seizures affect the normal pathways that would be used to do those perform those tasks
0: every time i hear this stuff it makes me think i should have learned an instrument in school <laughs> yeah
11: well that's what i guess we're sort of you know going towards like uh, is it that every child should play a musical yeah, instrument yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that would be
0: great <laughs> thanks so much thanks laura Thank uh next up is number 10 jennifer
11: yeah
4: jen's good jen yeah. jen's
0: good jen <laughs> tell us about what you're up to
4: um I'm uh, studying at Western Sydney Uni. That's a long story. Um, I'm a midwife by trade. Yep. My work is looking at a bunch of professionals called lactation consultants. Ah, uh, yes. And I'm interested in how they provide breastfeeding support to women. Right. So the way I investigated that was to do a focused ethnography where I hung out with them deeply, mm-hmm. as yep. they say, <laughs> uh, for mm, about nine months and... Uh, Interviewed them about their work and obviously observed them do their work too. And then used a process to try and express and articulate what it is they do. Um, It's turned out to be a study about care right and about yeah. the nature of
0: care yeah which is such so. an important part especially in that period of people's lives absolutely yeah, it's, Incredibly it's very stressful time. and yeah. very vulnerable and, yeah. and a lot of support needed so very there.
9: very liminal is what uh, yeah right yeah, say, yeah.
0: So, yeah. Uh, there we go yeah. well thanks so much jennifer good. Uh, Jen, uh, good to chat to you now uh next in the studio is uh, number 11 novel hi how are you going happy birthday
12: Thank you so much. <laughs> uh,
0: we'll spend the extra five seconds on the birthday mission. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> tell tell us who you are and, and, and what you do.
12: Yeah, so that's excellent. And especially it's my birthday. It's a special day for me. And around the world, 30,000 newborn uh, are born actually in a day around the world. And um, about 104 of these newborns receive skin-to-skin contact. And what I mean by skin-to-skin contact is what when the baby, naked baby placed on the mother, chest uh, mm, their yeah. abdomen for at least an hour. Yep. Um without any interruption. Mm,
9: right. So
12: skin-to-skin contact has uh, enormous uh, social uh, uh benefits for the mother and the baby. And uh, my study involved um observing birth, uh talking to um mothers and uh, healthcare providers about the practice of skin-to-skin contact. What we found that clinician actually interrupted sometimes interrupted the practice by taking the baby away from the mother for uh, doing routine measuring and weighing and um Um, However, most mothers actually wanted to keep the babies with Mm, them um, for longer than even an hour uh, as they feel close and related to their uh, babies. Mm, so keeping, yeah, say keep, yeah. keeping the mother and the baby together in that really important time would strengthen the relationship between the baby yeah. and the mother, and also transf- transfer the good bacteria from the mother's skin to the baby, as well as give a good start for breastfeeding. Sounds like so a good plan this- to me.
0: No, thank you very much. Happy birthday! Thank Happy birthday so to the sure other thirty million people who share your birthday. <laughs> uh, Dina number... uh, Is that right? Did I get that right? Yes, Yes, I did. Number 12. Uh, Tell us about your work and where you're
13: from. Uh, So, hi, I'm Dina. I'm from La Trobe University, the School of Psychology and Public Health. Mm -hmm. Um, My research title, my thesis title really, is um, Age-Related Changes in Cognitive Processing. Um, And so what I looked at is how the healthy brain processes processes information across the lifespan. So really what I looked at is um, how healthy older adults process information compared to healthy young adults.
0: Mm. And what sort of changes did you see
13: so that was an interesting point because what we found was the way we actually um, assess for cognitive processing is um va- varies and in the literature um it really depends on what task you use and and that implies whether you will see differences between young and older adults so currently um what we know about cognitive aging is um variable so some some would just suggest that uh older people are slower and less accurate mm. but we found depending on what task we used um that wasn't always uh, the case
0: interesting yeah yeah, yeah it's- Sounds like we're getting that testing wrong for a lot of people. Yeah. More nuance required. Yes, yeah,
13: so my research yeah. went towards developing a new battery of tests and um, that can be used in clinical and experimental settings.
0: Excellent. Dina, thanks so much. Thank uh, you. Thanks for being part of our, our group.
13: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Next in the studio is number 13, Enki Lee.
13: Enki, that's Enki. right.
7: Enki, tell name is, us about your stuff, Enki. Yeah, my name is Enki. I'm, calling, I'm coming from Hudson Institute of Medical Research. Yep. My PhD is on automation in cell therapy manufacturing.
0: Oh, wow. And um, give us a bit more about that. What does that mean?
7: So we know how to, um, we use drug to treat uh, patients. Yep. And then now we all can also use cells to treat patients. So
0: cell, our own cells?
7: Our own cells yep. or other people's cells. Oh, wow. We know how to manufacturing molecules uh, for, for drugs, but we are not that good at manufacturing. Uh, manufacturing cells yeah. and a lot of the process are still quite manual and as a result we're looking at half million for one patient to for cell therapies. So one of the reasons for that is because of lack of suitable tools to manufacturing cells. So mm-hmm. therefore my PhD is um, industrial collaboration from right. a Melbourne startup company called Synergy and together we want to develop an automation device for cell therapy manufacturing. That
0: sounds fantastic. I love alternatives to all these existing pharma stuff because you know we've we've heard from uh, there's also electrical responses and other other things that we can do. Rather than just pharma. I mean, that's yes. it's, it's a good way to go. Yes. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It was Thank great you. chatting to uh, Now, the last one in this group before we take another break is Cameron. Yes? right that right? How are you going, Cameron? Tell us about you and your work.
14: Fantastic. So I'm at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in the Brain and Mitochondrial Group. And I'm using human pluripotent stem cells to model mitochondrial disease to find a new drug treatment.
0: And mitochondrial disease, that's that's the part of our DNA that sort of caps it off when it splits, right? So it stops the ends from fraying? Is that no. no? So mitochondria oh, are the powerhouse. The powerhouse. Oh I
14: know I'd get that wrong. Physics yeah. guy. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> so they're an energy production disorder. Oh yeah. And right. they affect about one in five thousand live births. Yep. But currently there's no treatments that are clinically yeah. validated. And so we're trying to use stem cells to generate high-energy cell types Mm. like cardiomyocytes so that we can test these drugs. Because obviously we get skin from patients, yeah, yeah, but skin doesn't necessarily use a lot of energy. Yeah. And so can you get other things from patients that might be more available in the testing phase? Yes, we can get tissues, but often uh, mitochondrial diseases have over 320 disease oh, genes. right. And so it's difficult to diagnose these diseases before um, the patients pass on. And so yeah. often we won't have the tissues that we need to do the research.
0: Got Yeah.
14: Tough stuff. Well, it's an interesting.
0: Uh, telomeres is what I was thinking about. Yes, telomeres. Telomerase. <laughs> yeah. Telomeres you know we get there Cameron thanks so much for being part of our 20 we're gonna take a break folks for uh, just important triple uh, R announcements and then we'll be back with our final group of uh, rapid Fire PhD students for today
9: three triple
0: Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 Triple It's Einstein and GoGo. We are zipping through 22 PhD students in about 20 minutes or so. In the studio with us now is number 15, Samantha McNeil. Welcome to Triple R.
7: Hi, Shane. Thanks for um, having me here.
0: Tell us about your work.
7: Yeah, so I'm Sam, and I'm from the um, Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences, and I'm studying towards drug discovery. Hmm. And what I'm particularly interested in is looking at how we can design better drugs to treat the injury that happens following a heart attack.
0: Okay. Right. And so, so what 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 is that? I mean, what drugs what yeah, do you get when you have a heart attack?
7: Yeah, so um, the current therapies we have to treat a heart attack are actually very effective. Mm-hmm. So um, more patients than ever are surviving a heart attack. But unfortunately, those therapies actually cause injury. And okay. if we don't treat the injury, those patients can go on to develop further heart problems. Mm. So we desperately need to treat this injury to prevent those problems from happening
0: injury to the heart or the rest of the body
7: so injury to the heart mainly so the heart tissues
0: yeah and so you're looking for drugs that might be able to replenish that or stop the injury in the first place
7: stop the injury in the first place to actually prevent it Well, the injury is always going to take place but actually just prevent it from progressing and actually causing that damage
0: fantastic sounds great Samantha thanks so much for being on on our show today next in the studio is number 16 Jordan Thomas welcome Jordan
7: Hi Shane, how are you
15: going?
0: Good. Tell us about your work.
15: Uh, so I'm from La Trobe University yep. in the physiology department, and we all know someone who has high blood pressure. Yep. Um, but what a lot of people don't know is that 20 to 30% of people um, are not responding to the current
11: treatments. Oh,
15: okay. Yep. So we look at um, how the immune system is involved in the development of high blood pressure and especially the inflammation in the organs associated with high blood pressure, like the kidney. Yep, yep. Yep.
0: So the bloody immune system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated, though, right? So yep. so how do, you, how do you go about um, tweaking that so it doesn't happen?
15: Okay, so my research uh, focuses on a particular part of the immune system, interleukin-18. Mm-hmm. And when that's absent, we've shown that uh, blood pressure, it's protective against the development of high blood pressure, and then um, it's protective against the development of kidney inflammation and other markers of kidney damage. So we think okay. that if we can target this part of the immune system, uh, then we can develop a new antihypertensive.
0: Sounds great to me. It's a very important area. So many people suffering from it, and it causes early death, I think, too. So not good. Yep. All right. Thank you very much. In the studio now is number 17, am I right? Which must be Stephanie Lynch.
16: Perfect. Thank you, yes. Shane, for having about me today.
0: Tell us about your work.
16: So I'm from from La Trobe University and I'm working on an alternative treatment option for bacterial infections in dogs.
0: Oh wow, that's great. We don't think about the dogs much, do we? So what sort of bacterial infections do they
9: get?
16: Um, So this particular bacterium (laughs) is called Staphylococcus pseudintermedius and it causes a range of moderate to severe infections from skin infections all the way through to respiratory and reproductive issues. Oh wow! And it is also zoonotic, meaning it is um, translatable to humans as well, which is concerning.
0: Yeah, that's bad. So how do we go about stopping it?
16: So I'm working on bacteriophages, and these are really cool, small viruses that naturally kill bacteria. And so we have already found three or four bacteriophages that show in the lab to efficiently kill the bacteria, and we aim to formulate these into new treatment options.
0: Right. And do we just find those in the environment, or do yeah. we carry them?
16: Um, the dogs carry them on right. their skin, we have found, so that's where we found ours, and in the soil we found. Um, but yeah, they're everywhere. They Fantastic. outnumber bacteria. So. Sounds
0: good. Get them yeah. going and kill off those dog bacteria. Thank yeah, you. yeah, Excellent. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Next in the studio is number 18, Vivian Tran.
8: Hi.
0: Tell us about where you're from and what you do, Vivian.
8: So I'm from La Trobe University, and I'm from the Vascular Biology and Immunopharmacology Group. Cool. That's a big mouthful. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, My PhD is focusing on vascular dysfunction and immunity in metabolic syndrome.
0: Okay, what is metabolic syndrome?
8: Good question. So metabolic syndrome is an umbrella term that we use to describe a variety of related diseases. So these diseases include obesity, type two diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. Yep. So. What we're really focusing on is what research has shown us so far is that Individually each of these diseases can cause cardiovascular disease but what we don't know is what is the combined effects of them together.
0: Right. And yeah. how it leads
8: to an increased risk of cardiovascular events.
0: Yeah, cuz often when whenever people do clinical trials too they separate people out and that's not realistic is it? People yeah. have multiple comorbidities. Exactly. Can you say that multiple comorbidities or you just say comorbidities? co-morbidities. <laughs>
8: yeah.
9: We yeah. <laughs> you have one without whoa, the other. Yeah,
0: too many yeah. that's a problem. Yeah, but that's, that's great to hear you doing that. That's really interesting work. Thanks so much for coming Thank in you. today. Next in the studio is number 19, Alina Lamb. Yes. Hi. Alina, where are you from and what are you working on?
7: Yes, so I'm from Monash, and I'm looking at uh, better ways to treat inflammatory arthritis.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so that must involve... Uh, are you looking at it from the perspective of how the immune system is causing arthritis or long-term deterioration in the bones?
7: Yep. so we're more interested in drug delivery yep. strategies to um, reduce side effects that come along with a lot of these immunotherapies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And are the side effects mainly liver and kidney damage? or other problems?
7: Yeah, so that's a big part of it as well. But um, one of our major focuses is looking at reducing side effects from uh, increased risk of infection.
0: Yeah. And um, any particular big drugs you're after going after that will work, you think or
7: um, We're trying to refine the use of current drugs.
0: Okay. Yeah. So
7: we want to target them specifically to the lymphatic system, which is
13: like sort of Ah. a sewage system.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming in today. Great. Good luck with your PhD. Uh, Next is number 20, Anandita. Anandita.
13: Hi,
17: yes. Did I I get that right? That's perfect. Thank you.
0: Tell us uh, where you're from and what you're working on.
17: Yes, I'm Anandita. I'm a geologist at Monash Uni School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment.
0: Uh, cool. Uh, I I love that stuff. (laughs) Dr. Linda knows this. Yep, what are you working on?
17: I look at fractures in rocks, so cracks in rocks and their ancestors. So basically, I want to know if uh, the shape and orientation distribution of rock cracks are affected by older cracks or older geological features, say if... uh, a crack that's older than 400 million years old would affect a new feature that's maybe 100 million years old. Oh,
0: do we have yeah. an insight into whether that's the case? That's
17: um, yeah, it depends on the scale at which we're looking at the rocks. So the scale of the systems, if we're looking at something that's one kilometre long, or if we're looking at cracks that are maybe only a few metres long. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so it depends.
0: Do you ever get to look at uh, cracks um, that are earth-based, like Mars, yes. stuff and that?
17: Yeah, so I, my field area is the Gippsland coast. Oh, right, so I yeah. look at um, rocks on the beach using drones, and I get to make 3D models of them, and then I try to simulate um, these fracture processes in the lab using that's sandbox cool. models.
0: That's very cool. I just love the fact that people are using drones for everything.
17: Yeah. <laughs> <It's> fantastic. <laughs> drones are great. <laughs> yeah.
0: and they're, they're fun. They're awesome. Uh, Amanda, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks uh, for having great me. Great to chat to you. Number 21, Kimberly. Kimberly Reid, tell us where you're from and what you work on.
18: Hi Shane. I'm from the University of Melbourne and I'm looking at atmospheric rivers. So that's giant rivers of water vapour in the sky and a single river can transport more water than the Amazon and Nile combined.
0: And how far do these things travel?
18: So, a typical river is at least 2,000 kilometres long, oh, wow. but they can be up to about 5,000 kilometres, and they travel about halfway across the glo- globe, across oceans. And when they hit the land, like Australia, for example, they rain out all this moisture and cause extreme rainfall and flooding.
0: Yeah, yeah, and in terms you said more water than you know some of our major rivers. I mean, what, we we just haven't heard about these things. Why, why why don't we hear about these more often when we're talking about water distribution?
18: Yeah, good question. So they're a big deal around the world, especially in places like California, mm-hmm. and they occur quite regularly in Australia. In fact, the twenty ten Queensland floods yep. looks like it may have been associated with an atmospheric river as well oh, as wow. other systems so that's really why i'm looking at it that's mind-blowing
0: stuff i love that that's fantastic i hadn't really heard much about that we're gonna have to we're definitely talking about that next year that could be the 2020 topic atmospheric rivers uh very cool uh kimberly thanks so much Thank you. And lucky last number twenty two, Dibelina, welcome to the studio. You're the last one. <laughs> We've got twenty-five minutes. Take your time. <laughs> 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 tell us about what you're working on.
9: Hi Shane. Thank you for having me. I'm Debolina from Aramite <clears throat> University and I work on proteins for vaccine development in chickens. Chickens. Yeah, chickens. So what if I tell you that the chickens we consume, especially the undercooked or raw poultry, is contaminated with bacteria that can make you really sick. Yep. With symptoms, it has abdominal pain and diarrhea and the problem is actually very huge because millions of healthy life years are lost due to this
0: yeah this is and, and does it affect the chickens themselves or just the people consuming the chickens
9: it's more the people who are consuming the chickens and less the chickens so what we are trying to do is develop a vaccine mm. against campylobacter jejuni so this is the bacteria that is majorly responsible for causing right. foodborne infections through yep. chicken meat so the mm. vaccine will prevent the bacterial growth in chicken and keep us and the chickens safe yep. so basically after my research you will not have to think before having a chicken dishes
0: yeah and foxes don't think before they have a chicken dish either <laughs> so presumably it's not just us <laughs> <laughs> fox in a house you know that's how it works uh, Demolith thanks so much for being part thanks of so our, our 2020 I think we got there I think we did the whole 22 in about some minutes um, a mass- oh, we're going to come back and chat about this in a minute but uh, well done everybody I think uh, they're all fantastic we're going to take a break for some music folks so I can get the sip of water or something rather three triple r <laughs> uh, uh, welcome back everybody you are listening to einstein the gogo on three triple r we just interviewed 22 phd students in i don't know it was about 12 minutes by my count chris kp is that what you I'll give take twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, but uh, I was chatting to the team during the break, and there were there were a couple that were just spectacular, and they were all great. Um, there was a couple that piqued the interest of the team, so we have asked Kimberly Reed and Stephanie Lynch to come back into the studio. Welcome, you two. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> You're freaking out now, aren't you? You oh, weren't prepared yeah. for
2: this part because <laughs> like, we had to actually grab them on the way out the door. It uh, <laughs> wasn't
0: easy. <laughs> now, just to remind you, folks, Kimberly Reed uh, spoke to us just a few minutes ago, actually, because she was number twenty-one about the atmospheric rivers, and Stephanie Lynch talked about the infection in dogs. Yes, did I yes. get that right? Yes, correct. can't believe I remembered that after oh 22 God. of you. <laughs> um, I'm going to hand over to my team to ask you some questions.
1: All right, I'll start off with the rivers. So how high are these rivers in the sky? And the second part is, are humans having an effect on you know, air traffic and things like that?
18: Good question. So they're actually quite low level in about the first one to two kilometres in the sky. And in terms of planes, well, planes are typically in the stratosphere, Mm. which is more like 40 to 50 kilometres up. So humans aren't likely to be affecting them directly in terms of aeroplanes, although there is a lot of research looking into climate change and how they might change in the future, which is, of course...
2: So when when you're going up in an aeroplane, typically on the way up and the way down is when you get turbulence. Is some of that turbulence possibly because I'm crossing a river?
18: (laughs) Turbulence can be caused by lots of weather systems, so any kind of cloud and storm will release energy in the form of what's called a gravity wave which is basically just like a wave in the ocean but it's air moving up and down and that's what Mm. shakes the airplane so it could be a river it could be just a storm or yeah
2: okay so so i'm dying to get to the to our other student but before we do just just before we do um how easy is it for you to define what is a river and what is just other turbulence
18: Good question. So the first part of my PhD is all about definitions of atmospheric rivers. And what we do with the rivers is we look at the moisture, so we can get satellites to measure the moisture in the air, and we give a number and say, if it's above this threshold, it's a river, and then we define it by its shape and how long it is and how continuous it is. So a river's a really, really big system compared to, say, a thunderstorm, which will cause Mm -hmm. a lot of turbulence as well.
0: And these sort of, rivers aren't localized. You said thousands of kilometers earlier, so yeah. A, and and at, at any given time in the globe, how many rivers would be you know going on? Goodness. Do we have a feel?
18: Yeah, so usually about five to six. Oh, at okay, any so given not moment. many. Yeah, not many. No, but they're quite big.
1: So are these rivers really transient? Like you know, obviously we you know in the oceans we have these current systems and they're relatively stable. They you know they shift and move around, but they're sort of, sort of established. What yeah. about these rivers? And also, I'm thinking, are these rivers? Um, potentially really bad transporters of pollution, you know, from one region to another?
18: Yeah, good question. So the rivers were actually first discovered because people were looking at the transport of carbon monoxide, how it was getting from the equator to the poles so fast. And that's when they discovered these basically highways for pollutants and water vapor. Mm. And they do move. So they, they move typically across an ocean in a few days.
0: Okay. Yeah. And and do we find that there are things like migratory birds and so forth that interact with these systems? It seems like something that you know might affect
2: you, you want know. to surf a wave, don't you?
0: <laughs> I'm just thinking of all of my knowledge of this stuff comes from, you know, finding Nemo and the turtles <laughs> and the high-speed trend you know, is is there is this anything to that?
18: Um, oh, great question. I haven't seen anything like that, and it's way outside my area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
9: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: all right so over to dogs so correct me if i'm wrong you're saying that the these bacteriophages are in the soil they're in the environment my question about the health of dogs is is there any research looking at how much exposure your dog has to being in the environment you know you see dogs rolling in the dirt and that makes me now think are they actually doing that to make themselves healthy so what do we know about that about dogs that have more or less exposure to being dirty and and how that affects their health
16: That's a really great question, and I don't think there is a lot of research into that, which is um, interesting, but what I do know about the bacteria that I'm working on, the Staphylococcus pseudintermedius, intermedius, is that um, healthy dogs are actually colonised with this, so it's like a normal microbiome kind of um, species, Um, and it actually becomes opportunistic in infections. But in terms of the fascias, um, that's a really good question, and yeah, it's not something that we know just yet.
2: So I, I'm, I'm pushing you now outside of what you're allowed to talk about, I suppose, I expect, um, I hope anyway. Um, but so, I mean, I think Ewan's being very polite that, yes, dogs roll in the dirt, but let's face it, what they'd rather have to roll in is something that's dead and rotting. Um, and, and if conventional wisdom is it's something to do with scent, and maybe that, I mean, I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm wondering, is there more to it than that? Are they, are they smarter than that? I mean, there's plenty of bacteria and rotting stuff.
16: Yeah, I, I'd love to know that as well. Yeah.
2: Do you own a dog?
16: Yeah, I do. Yeah. And
2: are you are you a clean freak with your dog? No. It's not groomed within inch of its life? No. And it's healthy?
16: Yeah. Just so. So, yeah, yeah. you might be onto something here. I am very interested in that. And
2: and the, uh, the bacteriophage thing, mm-hmm. how, how well is that understood broadly? I mean, we know what they do with bacteria, but do we understand the variety of them and how effective they are and all that kind of thing?
16: I think the research, I mean, they've been around before antibiotics, but the research is booming at the moment, of course, due to antibiotic resistance, um, and they're already being used in patients where no other alternatives are available. So... um, yeah, the research is really interesting, and I th- mm. yeah, I think it's continuing to grow. We
0: we um we recently heard uh, the news a couple of weeks ago that uh, new calculations have been made, and Chris K P actually did this on um, the, the breakfasts during the week, oh, nice uh, indicating that um, the idea of one dog, you know, a, a, a dog year equaling one um, dog year equal to seven human years, you know, so like if you've got a three-year-old dog, it's equivalent to a twenty-one-year-old, or as I like to say, if you've got a one-year-old dog that's breeding it's the equivalent of a seven-year-old breeding which doesn't quite work and we you know there's a lot of things around that don't work but recently some uh, researchers have done some calculations on this and worked out that uh, all dogs are different for a start but that there's a non-linearity between dog age and comparing to other species which is kind of a silly thing to do anyway when you look at this sort of work with um you know these biological agents is it really different for different breeds of dogs and so forth in the same way that we see this weird age stuff like you know we, we normally think big animal long living but in dogs that's not the case right big dog short living yeah you know, little dog long living which is not the elephant whale thing it's the other way around so do we see differences between the you know huge range of breeds of dogs
16: um that's a good question and i know that the bacterium isn't specific to any dog breed that i know of Mm -hmm. um some are more prone than others but um it seems to be a whole dog species issue yeah
2: yeah yeah so it might be a whole lot i'm I'm interested in the um the fact that so obviously dogs and humans share a lot of of history yeah how does their how does the what what do you know about the, the crossover between their microbiomes
16: Oh, that's a really good question. Um,
2: <laughs> Sorry, it's unlike me to do yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's
16: good. Because um, I'm, yeah, only focusing on this one bacterium and I do know that that... Um, that can jump. Yeah, to mm. humans, but in terms of their whole
2: microbiome... What do, what do we do? Do we do we employ bacteriophages? I mean, you know, naturally, or we just sort of hope that our immune system recognises the bacteria and deals with it. So if, if this particular bacterium jumps from a dog to a human, yeah. what do we do?
16: Yeah, I guess we do... Um, it, in humans, it mainly causes the skin infections, so we do rely on our um, innate immune yep. system to um, counter that. But, yeah, in terms of the bacteriophages, they are all over our skin as well. Um, yeah. Whether they're in, yeah, there isn't a lot of research in that.
2: Somebody else's PhD, don't worry about it.
16: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's all very interesting.
2: That's no, very cool stuff. All right. Now, before I uh, go
0: back to the team here for some, to finish up with some news for the week, um, I just wanted to thank you both for coming in for a little bit extra. We will get everyone who was part of the 22 today back on in. 2020. Uh, let's just say we're getting back next decade. I like saying that. It's going to be my, my new phrase all for the next few weeks. <laughs> Sometime in the next decade, that uh, no, we'll get you all back uh, next year to to have a more uh, detailed chat about your work. But uh, how long have you both got to go on your PhDs?
18: So I'm a year in. So. Oh forever <laughs>
16: <Yep>. <laughs>
18: yeah. and yep. I just finished my
16: second year so I'm probably about a year and a bit so today. you just yeah.
0: through the, the 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 dreaded um, doldrums period yes
16: I have heard about that one <laughs>
0: depression and it's a, it's a hard time second year second yeah. year is a hard time it's good to get through that year and uh, well you know all I can say Kimberly is looking forward to <laughs> second year you know, second year is often a hard point in a PhD so um, yeah well done for getting through that so thank you both uh, stick around here in the studio these two guys are. we're just going to chat with a bit of news before we finish the show dr ewan do you want to start us off
1: yeah traffic jams who's been in a traffic jam uh, today he gets frustrated <laughs> in traffic jams yeah, yeah and queues as well so some fantastic research in the journal e-life about ants right so i'm sure you've all yeah. watched ants and how they move around um, ants can move hundreds of ants in a really small area and not bump into each other. And yeah. people have not known how they do this. So what they did, they did an experiment where they built bridges between the ant nest and a food source, and what? they actually varied the width of the bridge. Oh. More ants, less ants. And what they showed was that as the number of ants was low, ants sped up, and as the number of ants was more, they sped, They sorry, they slowed down. So what they actually have shown is that unlike humans, we silly humans individual ants regulate their speed when they sense there's a traffic jam occurring. So they would never bumped into each other, even though they had 80% use of the bridge. So in humans, we know that when we reach about 40% capacity of a bridge, we start to see traffic jams and you mm. know, slowing mm. down and so forth. Ants,
2: 80%, no issues at all. That's incredible. But is, is, this, is this partly to do with the fact that ants, like the the impending army of driverless cars, actually interact more than, than individual humans? That's a great question. I really don't know, but I just, I just found that fascinating. That that.
1: You know, as yeah, humans, you know, big brains and so forth, we can't manage this. But ants, this incredible ability to, to sense what's going on around them and mm-hmm. to actually modify their own speed so that they don't cause disruption for the larger, you know, group. It's uh, yeah. fascinating. So, research. you know what
0: I want to do now? I want to go home. And because one of the things I found fascinating when you're driving through the mountains and there's some road work yep. and one side of the road is cordoned off, and there'll be, you know, one person up one end of this problem and yep. one at the other end of a little walkie talkie and they see the traffic lights. Yep. And some can go up for a while and then they switch it and the yep. other they're other waking up. I want to do that with some ants when they get home. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get a wire or something and make a one-way path and put ants at either end and just see if they give way to each other. I look forward to your report next week. Do you, do you think this will – I think this will happen. Yeah. I think the ants will pretty I can pretty see smart. the paper in nature. I think, now. you know, yeah. well, someone's probably already <laughs> – I've just mentioned it on air. Someone's probably already started doing it. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a slow (laughs) reader, so (laughs) it'll be done before I get (laughs) off air. Uh, But yeah, it's fascinating that I think it's... um, It's fascinating when you watch them because they don't tend to... They they go around each other. They don't don't crash. They don't crash.
1: Never. They
2: interact, yeah. But they they don't crash.
0: Yeah, yeah. But there were, <laughs> what would be the effect of two ants crashing, like legs coming off? Yeah, maybe, or, maybe they do. We just don't know. We just don't
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, 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 <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I
0: love the anyway. fact that when,
2: we, whenever one, you know, and and um ants interacting, they're polite. Yeah, it's always sorry, excuse me, it's coming through. It's yeah, never it's, get out of the bloody way. It's never. Yeah. Well, they're never that's, angry. You know, let's just say they're the opposite to humans in the way they interact. I think in that's, a lot of ways. Is that
0: the best way to put? Yeah, opposite humans. Chris KP, what have you got for oh, us? Look, I
2: just wanted to alert people, um, to, to especially anyone who's listening who might be on the International Space Station. I um, uh, just wanted to let you know that, if you haven't noticed already, SIMON2 has arrived. And if you're not familiar with this, SIMON2... This is one of the... OK, it's one of the worst acronyms ever, um, because Simon's but with a C, C-I-M-O-N, stands for Crew Interactive Mobile Companion. They've taken the N of SIMON from the last letter of the last word. Lamest acronym ever. Just call him Simon because yeah. it's his name. Anyway, I mean, seriously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, the point is, Simon is essentially a sphere, apart from one flat side, which is a screen. And you can do anything with this. It's a computer, right? So you can interact and say, here's, you know, here's some calculations I'm working on this particular experiment. Can you run this for me? You can, you can, um, can analyse data, you can whatever else. But Simon too. Has an emotional component. So Simon 2 has been loaded up with software that hopefully enables him to interpret mood so he can look at the astronauts and go, ooh, having a bad morning. I'll just back off a little here, give you some <laughs> space. Or you look like you're having a great day. Let's go, let's ask you, how are you going? How's your day, Dr. Shane? Is that, uh, see, I don't like it. No, it creeps me out. It creeps me right s- out. I just hear, what are you doing, Dave? Yeah. Yeah, I'm what, afraid he, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, I, yes, w- one of the articles I read actually went I- explained that they were at pains to make it look like it was not hell-like. I'm like, yeah, a smiley face on the side of a floating ball is creepy in its own right. Yeah,
0: I mean, if they made it look like a minion or something, I might go with that, like <laughs> yeah, it's the, not
2: hell-like. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's not hell-like, but it's, it's not as much fun as
0: a minion. I mean, the thing is, is with hell, it's just a bloody red light on a panel, so anything can
2: seem hell-like if it's creepy enough. Uh, you're showing me a picture. Yeah, that, that's creepy. Yeah, and it's, it's almost like it's hand drawn. It's like it's like some ten year old kid was given. In fact, maybe there was. There's probably some competition somewhere where they had a bunch of kids drawing a face for Simon, and that was the best oh. one. And it's not comforting. Yes,
0: no, interesting. Well, I wanted to just mention something. This is a couple of weeks old now, but I thought this was uh, fun. Um, about ten years ago, uh, there was a bit of an accident—not an accident, just a chance scenario—where some mice were born with longer than normal telomeres. So this is where I screwed up earlier when they accidentally you know, mm. called them something else. Anyway, um, but basically, um, these are the things that we think, if you have longer telomeres, you might be healthier and live longer. Yep. And as we get older, our telomeres are shortened up. So one way that, you know, you can't use this as a measure of actual specific age, but, you know, you could probably do it within a decade or So if I measure your telomeres, I could tell, Chris, that you're in your 50s, for example.
2: <laughs> well, my telomeres <laughs> would tell you much more than that. <laughs> um, but,
0: you know, as these get shorter um you know we start having problems and when we get really old it's interesting to me because i always have wondered what's the ultimate age of a human being if you could keep them alive but sooner or later you get to the point where i think your telomeres will kill you um, they'll get so short that they won't function and then your your body won't now unfortunately we die long before that happens but in this particular group of mice what they've been doing is looking at, you know, breeding these ones with hyper long telomeres. So this after this chance encounter ten years ago, now people are working on making them hyperlong. So you get these super long telomere mice and they are, believe it or not, living longer, they're healthier, they are less likely to get um cancer or obesity. So there's some really full That's interesting
2: because they're living longer, which is when things like cancer kick in the gear. That's yeah, its opportunity. Yeah, and,
0: and it's interesting because if you look at a lot of species, we kind of stopped evolving at a point because we weren't meant to live longer than that. So, you know, humans were breeding, you know well and truly under the age of 30 so if you died after that didn't matter you would passed on your genes good to go um your species propagates but now we're living to you know 80 to 100 and all these other things that we never evolved out of our genomes are causing us to die so this is interesting because this you know these sorts of things affect your overall health not just how long you live so interesting stuff.
2: Which is which is ultimately the aim. And this is, the, this is what um, medical researchers have been telling us for years on this program, among other places, that, that they're not just there to make you live longer. They want to make the quality of the life yeah. good too. And so when you start delving around what are the critical influences around that, yep. yeah, you're in yeah. Yeah, interesting territory. Exactly right.
0: And everyone wants to basically be healthy until the day they kick it. Yeah, to me. Yeah. You, you don't want, you want the last 15 or 20 or even well, 50 is, years of your life to be unhealthy.
2: This is what we learned from the, um, the, that dog age study as well. They were basically mm-hmm. saying the dogs have a long middle age. Yeah, They're a very, very yeah. short young time, a very, very short old age, and yep. lots of being somewhere between Eight, 30 and 60 in the middle yeah, yeah. And, and having a pretty good life. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that's what we want. I want to be a dog. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, Bring it on. Bring it on. Uh, folks, we're going to have to hand over in just a minute to the team from Eat It. Uh, if you just tuned in, we've uh, managed to somehow, and I'm not sure how exactly we did this, interview 22 PhD students, and a couple of them have actually sneakily have finished their PhD. I uh, didn't mention that, but only recently.
2: overachievers um, presumably the happiest
0: ones yeah actually they did seem a bit more relaxed Uh, but we have managed to do 22 of them I'm hopeful that all of them because they were great will come back on the show at some stage next year and we'll give them uh, instead of a minute we'll give them 10 um that's going to be a lot easier believe it or not it's easier uh, big thank you to Lyndon who has been tweeting at a rate of not i think cheating. she's just just caught up <laughs> about all their topics uh poor linden's got a bit nuts and you know Liv will come back next week and just waltz in the studio knuckles are pulsing from yeah here. she's done well uh, thanks to chris kp he's been my uh, my timekeeper <laughs> uh, <wandering around. laughs> it's been fabulous uh, Dr. Ewan was just really kind uh, he was, but he was here thanks buddy and uh, Jen will be back soon and you can go, go back to normal life <laughs> I think it would be great she'll have a million stories <laughs> to tell us next week about Antarctica, no doubt uh, folks, I'm going to hand over now to the team uh, from Edith, have a wonderful Sunday, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and GoGo, and we'll chat to you again next week Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einsteinagogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.